Let me uh, invite you to turn in your Bibles to Luke chapter 13, verse 10. Luke 13, 10. Um, and as you turn to Luke 13, 10, and let me pray for us, invite the Spirit of God to just help us connect dots between what he's saying in his scriptures and what he's doing in our lives. So Lord God, we do love you. We thank you, Father, for being a good father, for sending your Son in our place, sending your Spirit to empower us and enliven us to you. We pray that your, your Spirit today would help us to connect the dots between your big story and our little story and what it is that you want us to see and trust and obey. So we pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Well, uh, again, if you're new with us, we are doing a teaching series called The Journey. It's a, uh, we're working our way through Luke's gospel, Luke's narrative account of the life and death and resurrection of Jesus. And so one of the things uh, that sometimes happens uh, is we, uh, we run ahead on a journey and uh, then kind of go back later to visit uh, the train we missed. And so today we're going to jump into Luke 13.10. Next week we're going to go back to the beginning of the chapter. So... Um, this week, uh, we're seeing this kind of section of, of, of Luke. It's called the journey section by most Lucan scholars because it is the section, chapters 9 through 19, where Jesus is on a journey toward Jerusalem. He's headed to Jerusalem to the cross where he will die at the hands of the Roman authorities and the Jewish religious leadership. And, uh, and during this section on his journey towards Jerusalem, he is teaching his disciples what it means to do life with him, to journey with him uh, as a follower of Christ. And, and his presence and his teaching during these sections create this crisis uh, for the religious leadership. Will they recognize that God has visited them, come among them to become king in Jesus, or will they reject him? And so uh, this week we are looking at what does it look like when Jesus' kingly power comes into our lives, and next week we're going to look at how do we get in on that. So with no further Delay, let's get into the text. Luke chapter 13, verse 10. Read with me. Luke says this, On a Sabbath, Jesus was teaching in one of the synagogues, and a woman was there who had been crippled by a spirit for 18 years. She was bent over and could not straighten up at all. And when Jesus saw her, he called her forward, and he said to her, Woman, you are set free from your infirmity. Then he put his hands on her, and immediately she straightened up and praised God. Indignant because Jesus had healed on the Sabbath, the synagogue leader said to the people, There are six days for work, so come and be healed on those days, not on the Sabbath. The Lord answered him, You hypocrites! Doesn't each of you on the Sabbath untie your ox or donkey from the stall and lead it out to give it water? And should not this woman, a daughter of Abraham, whom Satan has kept bound for 18 long years, be set free on the Sabbath day from what bound her? Then, or when he said this, all of his opponents were humiliated, but the people were delighted with all of the wonderful things he was doing. Then Jesus said, what is the kingdom of God like? What shall I compare it to? It is like a mustard seed, which a man took and planted in his garden. It grew and became a tree, and the birds perched in its branches. And again, he he asked, what shall I compare the kingdom of God to? It is like yeast that a woman took and mixed into about 60 pounds of flour until it worked all through the dough. So here's God's word. Uh, I'll never forget this conversation I I had. A woman had come in to, to... 
I think meet with one of uh, the pastors. He just wanted some prayer, and and it was in, kind of just a normal conversation uh, at the beginning. This lady had come in, and it very quickly became evident that this, she had a case of mistaken identity, that she was uh, being told who she was uh, from a faulty source, right? That she felt responsible for all of the choices that her family, uh, her extended family were making, and, and everybody around her, she felt responsible as if, as if their decisions were a reflection on her decisions, and, and it was crushing her. And at, on the top, on the surface of this woman's life, she looked successful and like things were going well but underneath there was like this crushing crippling phenomenon happening that she was she was actually living with this lies that were absolutely crushing her there was this the lies of shame like you're you're worthless right there was the the lies of of failure you it's your fault that your family acts this way or makes these choices or struggles with this thing. You must perform to be loved, to be accepted, etc. And all of these lies were creating a phenomenon for her where she was brought low, like she was like crippled, like this woman we just read about in the Gospels. She was debilitated emotionally. It was this conversation that began with a simple, so how, how are you doing? Like how, how are you really, right? Uh, only to find out really quickly that this person was held captive, that this is a person who's not doing well, that they're bound. And so the question is for us, like when we meet someone who is captive, bound, debilitated emotionally or relationally, like what, what do we do? What do we do when we meet someone who is imprisoned by these kinds of things? Or what do we do when we begin to see ourselves this way? When we realize I'm stuck, I'm, I'm like spiritually lost here. Like I, I can't seem to uh, muster up the willpower to change myself. I'm lost spiritually, emotionally, and relationally. Well, one of the things that we constantly find as we engage the scriptures, as we read through the gospels, is that the authors of the gospels are putting forward the story of Jesus as if to say, what Jesus has done for these people, he has come to do for you. And the way the stories end, and ultimately into the book of Acts, particularly Luke, because they're, they're a pair, volume one, volume two, is that, uh, that what Jesus has come to do for us, he's also come to do through us and for the world. And so this is this thing that we constantly find as we engage the Gospels. And so today in Luke's passage, or Luke's, this passage of Luke, uh, he helps us to see the way that Jesus' authority and power are intended to intersect with our infirmity and imprisonment to things like I was just talking about with this, this woman. Uh, there are three things I want to show you. The first thing is this. The first thing in this passage that we see is Jesus shows us a profoundly personal contrast. There's a profound contrast. Uh, look at what's going on here. What, what's the context of this passage? What, what day is it? It's a Sabbath. I think somebody said Sunday. It's a Saturday. Sabbath is Saturday. Um, it's a Sabbath day. Um, and it is where? Where is it happening? In a, in a synagogue. Right? Right, so, so far, like, it was the author trying to tell us that this is uh, a good place, a bad place, a neutral place. Yeah, it's, it's just a, it's a Jewish day of worship, right? So God should be the focal point of the story. Uh, it's in the synagogue, a place for training and, 
and, and instruction. And Jesus is doing the thing that Rabbi Jesus always does. He comes into a synagogue. He's invited to teach the Bible. And what does he do? He gets out his scroll and he teaches the Bible. That's, that's what Jesus is up to here. And he's in this village where he sees a woman. And it says in the text that she was, uh, had been crippled by a spirit for 18 years. It's a way of saying that nobody could explain what was happening to her medically. Right? She had this physical condition. Uh, she was bent over. Uh, some people think that this is a muscular thing. I read one person that said this was a psychological thing. Another person said that her bones were fused together. But at the end of the day, she's bent over. And the text says that she could not straighten. She couldn't get upright. Right? She's just bound and bent over in a constant crunch, which sounds miserable to me as a foodie. Uh, but Luke uh, tells us that Jesus understands that there is a spiritual reality to this condition, that there is a spiritual entity behind what's happening to her. Uh, and this is true of in, in the Bible of all sickness, that sickness is a result of sin tearing the fabric of the universe, that sickness was never intended to be part of the human condition and one day will be erased from the human condition. It doesn't mean that there's a de- demon behind every bit of cancer, but it does mean that there's a spiritual dimension oftentimes in what we are feeling and experiencing in life. And so Jesus actually perceives that this is not just a normal uh, body bodily malfunction, but this is a satanic, demonic debilitation. He says in verse 16 that this is a woman whom Satan has bound. So she could not straighten herself up because she had no power. I mean, can you imagine the pain of being chronically bent over? Some of you can imagine that. You you know chronic physical pain. Others of you know chronic emotional pain. Some of you know this chronic sense of spiritual pain where you just cannot seem to muster up enough willpower to alter your life or the things that you think and believe and do. And so we can imagine this. But Jesus sees her. This is an amazing story. Like nobody else seems to be noticing her, but Jesus, it says, sees her and he calls her forward. It says that he puts his hands on her. He t- touches her. Like he, maybe he puts his hands on his shoulders or... Or maybe on her head. I, I don't know. But he, he, he reaches out. He touches her. And he tells her that she's set free. You've been released, he says. You've been set free from this bondage. And, and in true Jesus-y gospel story fashion, what happens immediately? Like, whoop. Like, she's straight. Like, she, her back is fine. She's whole in this moment. It's amazing. Uh, And it says that she straightened up and she walked away praising God. Now, okay, uh, one of the things I've been training our Old Testament class on Monday nights is this very important Bible reading posture. As you read the Bible, you need to be able to do this occasionally. Huh. You you can't read your Bible well without one of these. Like, hmm? Like, you have to be able to engage in a hmm. Because look at what happened. Like, hmm. Jesus said you're set free. Like, he put his hands on her and she walked away and she's praising God. So it's like, do hmm, like do people know that Jesus is Yahweh in the flesh? I don't know. I don't. It doesn't seem like they've figured that out yet in the narrative. But what Je- what Luke is showing us is that Jesus is the divinely authorized healer, savior, and teacher who's come to bring God's kingdom. We'll work it out later that he's actually God. But this this isn't exactly the reaction everybody has, is it? 
There's a synagogue ruler, there's a synagogue leader. He's responsible for the inner workings of what happens in synagogue, for the training of the Jewish boys, for the selection of who's going to read and preach and teach the Bible. And, and the NIV says that he is indignant. The word in Greek means like really super annoyed. Right? <laughs> he is really, ang- he's an angry elf. Okay, He's a super annoyed guy. And so what does he do? He tries to get everybody as annoyed as him. This is what anger does when it gets a hold of us, right? When you're really hacked at something, what do you do? Everybody else should be as hacked as I am. Can you believe what Comcast did to me? Right? And you go tell everybody. Right? And, and that's what we do, right? We get mad and we want to work everybody else up. And so he's angry, he's annoyed, and he says this to the crowd, not to Jesus. He's, so not only is he annoyed and an angry elf, he's a passive-aggressive angry elf because he says this now to the crowd instead of to Jesus. And so he says to the crowd, there are six days for work. So come and be healed on one of those days, not on the Sabbath. Okay, now, what in the world is a human responding to a miracle like that for? Like what? What is going on in the human condition that we can look at a miracle like that and go, I wish, they, I wish you would have just done that a different time. Right? What's going on here? This is weird stuff. This shouldn't be. Uh, some scholars call this a, a mirror miracle uh, because it repeats activity that we've already seen earlier in the book. And so we've already seen some Jesus healing miracles in a Sabbath or in a synagogue on a Sabbath in Luke. This isn't the first rodeo for Jesus in a synagogue on the Sabbath. He's done this before. And so what Luke is doing is he's putting forward this mirror to hold up against the Jewish leadership. And he's saying, have these guys made any progress since the last time this happened? And as a reader, you should be able to go, oh yeah, wait, we've seen this. How, are they going to respond right this time? I hope so. And in typical biblical fashion, we end up disappointed by the response of humans. They go, oh man, they don't get it. Right? Yeah, they mess up. They don't get it. So Jesus pronounces freedom. He says, you're released. You're free. But the synagogue ruler won't have it. Right? And so Jesus confronts him. So you're a hypocrite. Right? You're willing to untie or set free your ox and your donkey. Okay, so the word for set free or released, is the exact same Greek word as untie. And so Jesus is playing with them. Right? It's perfectly fine within your custom to go release, set free, untie your ox and your ass, but you won't take care of a woman. That's what he's saying. So you're way more concerned about your ass than you are about this woman. Right? That's what he's saying. And so Jesus... Jesus is like, hey, so you're willing to set free, release, and liberate a barn animal. So what you're telling me is you're ranking in a hierarchy, you are ranking this woman who is a daughter of Abraham underneath a barn animal. Hmm. 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 Shouldn't happen. This shouldn't happen. Right? And so Jesus says, you've got to get your priorities straight, bub. Right? You don't value her, but Jesus does. And this is, this is the problem. This is what the contrast between the religious leader and Jesus reveals to us. See, the religious leader doesn't see the woman as a person. He sees the woman as a thing. 
He depersonalizes her. He objectifies her as a problem, as a something, as a something that can wait for a different time to become well. She is a something to him. Wait for another time to get well. A time that doesn't challenge my power and my turf. Right? Because what's his power in his turf? It's synagogue and Sabbath. This is his day to shine. And Jesus comes in and he challenges this guy's power and authority. Because he up shows this guy's power and authority, doesn't he? Your, 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 your religious system ain't got nothing on what I'm bringing. Right? And so the synagogue ruler, right? To, to the synagogue ruler, the woman is socially invisible. We'd rather just not see her. He'd like to keep his religious list up as more important than the inbreaking presence and power of God to save and restore people. Because guess what? It's messy and it upstages our own agendas and our own power. Look at his preoccupation. What's he preoccupied with? The rules, right? Like, let's keep the rules. And by the way, they're man-made rules. They're not Torah rules, okay? Because we just went through the Torah in our Old Testament class and not, there's not once... A, any kind of law, and all of the 613 laws in the Torah, there is not one that says you cannot heal on a Sabbath day. It says you must not labor. Right? And so then they had to work out the system of what's labor. Right? Well, Jesus isn't breaking Torah. He's coming up against man-made tradition. Right? And so what's his purpose? The man's purpose is to stir up controversy. Everybody get mad at Jesus because that controversy will help him preserve his power right? by getting Jesus out of the picture. If you want to preserve power and control in your life, get Jesus as far away from you as possible because he will come to you to undo it. But the problem is your power and control will corrupt you and you can't handle it. Jesus is the only person who's uncorrupted and can handle it and can handle you and me and everybody else. But look at the way Jesus engages her. It says that she was present and he saw her. I love this. Jesus' gaze is always big enough to catch the invisible. He's always got a gaze that's wide enough to get the marginalized, the vulnerable, the weak, the rejected, and the invisible. That's who he sees. And in his seeing them, they become visible to us. They become visible to themselves. Isn't that how it works? When we give ourselves to Jesus, when we become his, we become truly ourselves. That's another sermon though. But what does Jesus do? He personalizes her. He calls her. He touches her personally. He names her daughter of Abraham, which in the Bible is about the best thing that can be said of you. To belong to the people of God, to be a part of this divinely chosen vehicle to bring blessing to the nations. That's good stuff. But what's Jesus preoccupied with? Not man-made rules, but the kingdom. In other words, what Jesus is concerned about is not the rules, but the one who is ruling and what life results in when he rules us, which is healing and wholeness and power. And his purpose isn't controversy or preserving his own power, but to use his power to uplift someone above himself, to bring freedom from a life bound by Satan. So here's the question, friends, with this first point. How is it that we are like this synagogue ruler? Where are the places that we find ourselves like him? How do we depersonalize others, make them into some things rather than someone's? Where are those places that we elevate things over persons? 
In our culture, the easiest things, the easiest targets are time and money, right? I'm too busy for you, I'm too greedy for, for this, right? These are, these are easy things to elevate above people because they're deified in our culture. Our time is ours, our money is ours, but Jesus, his kingdom subverts that. And see, objectifying people isn't always, it's not always a sexual thing, right? Sometimes objectifying a person is just reducing them down to what they can do for us or what it is that they do that gets in our way. And it's that person that is invisible enough for me to say, you can wait. You can wait for, we're not concerned about Sabbath days in our culture, but we can tell a person, you can wait for someone else to be a part of your healing. You can wait for someone else to come alongside you and love you and care about you. You can wait for my attention until you have something to offer me. You can wait until your affection feels like, my affection feels like something you deserve and it's convenient for me. Maybe it's that person at work that your association with kind of lowers your status with every time you engage them. Maybe it's that person in your family you're tempted to make, kind of do the dance for your affection, right? If you do these things, then I'll love you. But what if instead of depersonalizing the poor or the, the annoying one or the, 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 what the world considers the useless person, what if we understood that they're a person and they have a story and we were like Jesus in this moment and we moved in there and we listened to the story and we saw where their need yearns for the love of God and we were willing to touch that place rather than avoid them. The thing that happens is you end up transformed when you do. Or maybe the issue for you this morning isn't so much making people into things Maybe it's just an issue of a turf war with Jesus, like the synagogue ruler. I mean, you would never say it. You would never come into church saying, I'm coming in here with a turf war with Jesus on my plate. But when it comes down to it, there's places in your life where you just want to tell Jesus, I don't want you to work here. I don't want you to work here now. Right? I'd like you to wait till after I've had my chance to do my thing to come into this place and work your transformation. I'd like you to not deal with this place. Jesus wants to set us free. He wants to offer the presence of his kingdom that liberates persons. But we like our own kingdoms, don't we? We like our own worlds like the synagogue ruler and his Sabbath authority. And so what are those places for you? Those turf war places. Maybe it's an attitude you like to hold on to, that little grumble that feels justified. Maybe it's a flirtation with someone that isn't your person to flirt with. Maybe it's an emotionally dark place that, that causes you to have fear and you want to say, I don't want to face it because it will make me look vulnerable and weak if I allow myself to face it. Maybe it's your budget. Maybe it's your time. Or maybe it's your reputation. If you say, I'm in with Jesus, other people will think less of me. But maybe it's none of those things. Maybe it's your own sense of goodness that is your turf war with Jesus. The sense that I deserve you to accept me because of all the good things that I do for you. Your turf that you can't let him in on is your self-justifying turf, your self-righteous stuff. It's your resume that earns you God's approval in your own mind. But the problem is a legalistic person will never be able to rejoice at God's sudden and gracious blessing on someone else who's undeserving. Because it feels like a violation of your entire moralistic system. I work for blessing and I deserve blessing. They didn't keep the rules and they got blessing anyway. Legalism's always furious in the face of grace. These might be indicators, warning lights on your engine dash that's telling you, Maybe I have incipient legalism. 
Because I'm always irritated at God's blessing of someone else. Yeah, man. So what does Jesus do? He shows us his gentle authority, his power to heal and bring us back to our humanity. It's a power, though, that threatens our own little worlds and our own little kingdoms. These are easy things to hide and to spiritualize. But the reality is, when you begin turf war with Jesus, it's a losing battle. Right? I mean, it's just not a wise thing to go toe-to-toe with somebody who is infinite and has eternal power held in reserve. He'll win the turf war in the end. Or he'll give you over to your turf, which is actually a very scary reality. Are you with me? If Jesus decides, I'll let you win your turf, it's not a good thing for us because that turf we've just won actually decreases our life. It never works out for us because we become smaller in the process. We become ultimately controlled by that small bit of turf we've held on to and fought for and we become enslaved to it. And it now controls our identity. See, it's just a much more wise thing to recognize that Jesus is a better king than we are and to just let him have the turf. Are you with me? Okay, so that's the contrast between Jesus and the synagogue ruler. So, and that's also your punch in the face for the morning. So, yeah, yeah, you got it. But where's the good news? Where's the salvation in this story? Well, it's right around the corner. Look at this powerful proclamation. So Jesus, he, he shows us, he exposes us something that's messed up in us, in the synagogue ruler. But then, look at what he does. Right? Because remember, what Jesus has done for this woman, he wants to do for you. And he also wants to do through you for others. So, the second thing we see is a powerful pronouncement. See, back in Luke chapter 4, rewind, Luke chapter 4. Actually, for you, it's over here, huh? Back here, linearly. Over here in Luke chapter 4, what, what is, what's this famous moment in Luke chapter 4? We call it the Nazareth Manifesto. Jesus goes into a synagogue on a Sabbath. He unrolls a scroll, boom, Isaiah 61. And he says, he reads it, right? And then he says, this is fulfilled today in your hearing. And what was, what was Isaiah 61 about? It's defining his mission. It's telling us, this is why I came. This is my deal. And what does he say in, Isaiah, in Luke chapter 4? He says that the Spirit of the Lord is on me. He's, be, he's anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. Get this, he says, he sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind and to set the oppressed free and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. So now what's Jesus doing in Luke chapter 13? He's manifesting his manifesto, isn't he? He's showing us that that's right. What I told you I came to do, I'm doing, and I'm doing it for this woman that nobody else would see, but I see, and I see you, and I want to do for you. So he brings freedom for a prisoner, release to the captive, oppressed. An oppressed woman becomes a free woman at the word and the touch of Jesus. How beautiful is that? Don't you want to get in on that? See, this is what Jesus has come to do. He's come to bring about a new exodus, to bring the slaves out of slavery, to bring the liberation that every human heart craves for, to be freed from the shackles of sin and death and the devil. Look at the state of this woman. What kind of condition is she in? It's not a good one, right? She can't straighten up. She can't do for herself what Jesus does for her. She cannot stand upright. Hey, again, I think this is one of those little interesting asides. What's Paul's language for our posture against the spiritual forces of darkness and evil? In Ephesians 6, what does he say we need to do? Stand. Isn't that interesting? So before she's bent over, she can't stand. She can't can't come in, like she can't deal with evil and its, its power in her life. 
Jesus frees her so she can stand and she can actually live in the posture Paul tells us to live in when it comes to the attacks of evil on our lives. To stand. She's freed. She can't do for herself what Jesus offers her in one sentence out of his mouth. She can't heal herself when we can't heal ourselves, but Jesus can. This is a profound picture of our condition, friends. Isn't it? Such a great, vivid picture. See, we become bent over, doubled over by forces beyond us, unable to become whole people on our own effort by the exertion of our own willpower. But I got to tell you, this is contrary to the story of our culture. The predominant story of our culture is you can define yourself. You can make yourself. Whatever obstacle is in the way of your own happiness and individual expression of what you most deeply want, you can conquer that. You can just, you just need like as much cash as the Kardashians and you can absolutely change yourself in any way you want, right? And so, um, one person has read the news. So, all right, good. All right, so she cannot do for herself what she wants. And this, this story of our culture says you can be self-defined and self-made, but the reality that we find in the scriptures is far more honest than our culture. The reality of the scripture says you're stuck. You become stuck. You become dependent, dependent on substances, dependent on a relationship, on approval of those around you. We become bent towards money or status or power or appearance. We become unable to walk out a holy life or a whole life because of our anger or our greed or our captivity. So the question then is for you and I, friends, where are we like this woman? In what ways am I like her, held captive and firm and less than fully alive? Where am I spiritually, relationally, and emotionally debilitated like her? Or am I oppressed and bound? And I don't mean where I'm oppressed in the way our culture sees it, which is just you're lacking an opportunity for individual expression, but in the biblical sense of, in terms of an area of your life that is deformed and bent in the wrong direction away from what God has created and designed you to be. Where is this you? Is there an inward attitude for you or an outward habit that keeps us from walking upright? You come in here today bent in some place that you need Jesus to write that. What do we do with that? The first thing we have, we have to name it. We have to see the condition for what it is. And we shine the bright light of truth on it. And we allow Jesus to see us for who we are. Because guess what? He already does. He already sees you and he already loves you. But this time you allow his word of grace to break that power. To redefine your identity. Allow the already accomplished for you on the cross work of Jesus to transform your story. Look at the grace and power of Jesus to set this woman free. And look at the grace and power of Jesus to set us free. Look at what the text says. He says to the woman, you have been released. Okay, so I'm going to nerd out, Bible geek, for a second with you. Um, when It says, you have been released. In the Greek, that is a perfect passive indicative, which basically means something like this. It's something that is fully done. It's passive. She doesn't do anything. She's not a participant in it. And uh, it's indicative. It is the way things are. It's not an imperative telling her to do something. It is just something perfectly done for you, not something we do for ourselves. This is a great illustration of the salvation God wants to bring to you, bring to me. 
There are these dimensions of salvation in this story. The first thing is that it's already given to you. It's already won for you. It is not earned by you. It is a gift. The second dimension is it is familial. He calls her daughter of Abraham. He's including her in a community of relationships into a community that is given a mandate of mission to bless the nations. It's personal. He, he touches her. This is the hand of God. The very first mention of the word redeem in the Bible is Exodus chapter 6. And that's where we get this picture of God saying, I will free you from being slaves. I will redeem you with an outstretched arm, right? With mighty acts of judgment. I will I'll touch you. There's a personal touch to this. Right? I'll take you as my own people. I'll be your God. He gives us something that we can't do for ourselves. It's a work of grace. But get this too, it's a new reality for the rest of her life. This isn't a one-time thing, guys and gals. This is not a one-time deal. It's not like, hey, cool, thanks for letting me stand up for five minutes, Jesus, I'm bent over again. This is the rest of her life transformed. She has a new life now as a, a walking, upright person. And this is what Jesus has come to do, to give us new life. Romans 6 says, you were dead in your sin. You're now made alive to God in Christ Jesus. You have a whole new life. He's transferred you out of darkness into the kingdom of his son to bring you into his family. And it's not an acceptance that depends on you, but on what he's done. And that's why he's headed to Jerusalem. He's on his way to die on a cross, the death we should die. Right? He's not distant. He's personal. He touches us. He brings us into a new life because he gives us his spirit to form us to be like Jesus. Okay, so as I sat with this woman, and I mentioned at the beginning of this message, we sat together and, and she had an opportunity. I asked her to just, would you say out loud before God the places that feel like they're binding you? She did. She just got to say out loud the places that she felt emotionally doubled over. And in that moment, I asked her to just read some of the words of scripture that, that just called her out for her identity as a daughter of a king. And she just got to read scriptures out loud where she declared her identity and that her acceptance wasn't the result of her performance, that she was, she was defined as a daughter of the king, not as a daughter who demanded performance to get acceptance. She got to just thank God out loud for the spirit who gave her new life. And as she confessed those places and as she uh, told Jesus that she trusted him to hold her together rather than feeling the pressure to hold everyone else together, she just cried some tears of freedom. Tears of liberation in that moment. And of course, the result was she just walked out super bored and sad. (laughs) Right? No, she was stoked, right? She was delighted. She laughed out the door, right? And that's, that's exactly what we find in this passage. In verse 17, when he had said this, when he had confronted the synagogue ruler and the crowd, all of his opponents were humiliated, but the people were delighted, delighted with the wonderful things he was doing. See, we have two choices. We can oppose the work of God, and the end result is you're going to end up humbled, Or you can get on board with it. You can respond to that work. And the result of our response is always delight. This is how you know you have been released from your old life held in sin. There's a real and lasting delight. Do you have delight this morning? The delight of Christ? You might not know it, but you do. If you are his. If you've given yourself to him. You have his delight. 
And so this is the reality. The church needs to take back delight. Like we we, we need to live lives of whimsy and, and, and enjoyment. This is what God has come to give us. So he's come so that you can have delight because of his work. This is what Jesus has come to offer you because it's what he wants to do in you. But it's also something he wants to do through you. And here's the last point this morning. The last thing we see here is a pervasive presence of God's kingdom. One of the remarkable things that we find in the Bible is that God gets his will done through humans. This is what you get in Genesis chapter 1. The, very, the picture of humanity is that we're partners with God. That the way God wants to accomplish his will in the world is through human agency. Right? He's delegating his authority. He's delegating his work. And so sometimes we want to say, God, why didn't you? And I think the Bible would like to go, well, but why didn't you? You're a human. You have an incredible responsibility and mandate to do divine stuff with him. Right? And so, so God says, I want you to be my partners. But sin disrupted this, right? And so Jesus comes and he brings release from sin and captivity. And he comes to form a community that will enact and embody his liberating work. This is the church. We embody his justice, his compassion, his mercy. And we uplift others above ourselves because that's what Jesus has done. And so we're his followers. And so right after this event of liberation and freedom... Jesus tells these two short parables. He says, what's the kingdom like? Well, I think we just saw it, didn't we? So he says again, but what's the kingdom like? What do I compare it to? It's like this little mustard seed that grows into a big tree and all the birds rest in it. But again, what's the kingdom like? What do I compare it to? Well, it's like yeast that a woman works into about 60 pounds of flour until it's worked all through the dough. So he's just shown his power and now he explains how his power works, right? He says, hey, this kingdom is like, it's like this mustard seed that grows into a great tree. It's like yeast that, that permeates the whole batch of dough. In other words, the kingdom begins in imperceptible ways, doesn't it? We're not even paying attention to God and he like calls us to himself and imperceptibly he's at work behind the scenes and then bam, dramatically we're converted and we have this experience of joy and gladness because of his love and forgiveness, and so, again, this works this way. The, the, the kingdom of God begins imperce- imperceptibly and grows into something that is all-pervasive throughout all of the world. And it looks like this because God, in his redeeming and healing of us, right, he, he like, makes us contagious, right? Like, we, we become uh, people who've experienced his radical goodness. We become then agents of that very goodness in the world. And so Jesus enlists us to be his people, his kingdom partners, so that the kingdom of God multiplies and fills every home and neighborhood and city and all the world with the favor of God and the sense of his presence and blessing and forgiveness and shalom. And that's what God's design was for human beings in the beginning. And through the cross and resurrection and giving of his spirit alive in us today, it's how that design to bring blessing into the world works today. But you have to become a participant. You have to be in on it. You have to say, in other words, now the question isn't so much, how am I like the synagogue ruler or how am I like this woman? But how are we like Jesus? How do we notice the unnoticeable? How do we pronounce freedom and good news to captives? How do we touch those around us with loving grace? 
right? rather than avoidance? How do we move into hopeless places and partner with God to seed new life and gospel hope? It happens in little conversations. And, and it happens in offered prayer. It happens in sharing stories and listening to stories and creating safe place for broken people to be broken people. It happens in little ways and little moments like I just shared uh, that, that I had with this, this woman who got to experience some freedom at the feet of Jesus. Right? But it wasn't, it wasn't me that brought freedom. It was God that brought freedom. I just got the easy job of saying, you know who's here? God's here. He, he cares. That's something you can do and we can do because guess what? You're all called to ministry. Right? This isn't like a pastor thing. This is a church thing. Sorry, you thought you might come in and enjoy a church service, but guess what? You're, you're getting enlisted right now as a follower of Jesus to be his representative, to be his instrument and foretaste of his kingdom in the world, to pastor with us. It's something you can do. You can point people, you know, let, let's talk about what's happened. Let's tell God about that. Let's, let's read together what he says about you. See, we can live with, as kingdom partners with Jesus because God's kingdom of heaven is invading the earth. I mean, how good is that? Don't you guys want to be a part of that tribe living that kind of story? Can I get some response of amen? Yeah, so good. So... Let's celebrate that. Let's celebrate that at the table. Let's bring ourselves to the table today to declare ourselves whole because of Jesus' death and resurrection. Let's go to the table this morning, friends, to eat and drink the elements that tell us where our delight is found, that we have delight. Let's eat and drink at the Lord's table as his guests and as his friends and as the ones he sends back out of here to love in his name. And so as we sing together, we just take a moment before the Lord as we sing in worship to offer up those broken pieces of yourself, the bound places, and allow his grace to remake you as you declare his death for you. Take a moment to ask Jesus to show you the invisible people around you, the ones he's called you to love. And take a moment to invite God to pour out his wisdom and his power to do one thing this week that moves the story of the kingdom one step further in one person's life around you in a simple way of just living as an instrument of the kingdom to listen, to love, to serve, to share, and declare Jesus' rule. That's good news. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your goodness. I thank you for the goodness of Jesus and his power to transform us. Thank you for the spirit who is making us like Jesus. We want to step into that identity of sent ones as we leave this place. We declare just the goodness of the gospel again this morning. So fill us as we worship and take the body and blood, the, the bread and the cup, yet again to declare where our delight is found, our freedom is found. Thank you, Jesus. In your name we pray. Amen.